The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. Okay, terrific. Hi, this is um, the Citizen Science Panel. If you're here for that, you're in the right place. My name is Teo Grossman. I'm the Director of Strategic Initiatives for Bioneers, and I'm thrilled to be the moderator for this panel. Um, we're down one, uh, but not permanently. I think Severn will show up, and she's slated to be the last speaker on the panel anyway, so you won't miss anything. She exists. I saw her earlier today. Um, so thank you all so much for coming. Uh, citizen science is a broad term, um, and this is likely not going to be your average citizen science panel. I don't even know if you can have an average citizen science panel for a uh, field that is so nascent. Um, the three projects that we have represented here uh, cover a fairly diverse spectrum of what you might consider citizen science. You can expect a conversation that will be equally broad, incorporating aspects of data-driven science, crowdsourcing, DIY movements, environmental activism, civic engagement, and democratizing technology. I will let the speakers do uh, the bulk of the work here, and we'll introduce them one at a time, and then we'll have time for conversation afterwards. Great, no problem. Cool. So we're going to start with Brian Haggerty. Um, Brian is an evolutionary ecologist studying at UC Santa Barbara. He helped design and implement the USA National Phenology Network and the California Phenology Project, emerging partnerships among federal agencies, academic communities, NGOs, and the general public to monitor the effects of environmental change on the seasonality of our nation's flora and fauna. Hey, here she is. Hi. That's okay. We're just getting going. Um, and you're last. You'll be all right. Um, for those who don't know, and Brian will share this with you, but a preview, uh, phenology, um, the more you learn, the more it blows your mind. Uh, I think about it as um, sort of the intricate, coordinated, and really mind-blowing clockwork of life on Earth and how it all connects. So um, without further ado, Brian, welcome. Clickers on the podium. Oh, yeah. We're plugged in. We're good. Thanks, Teo. I like how you described phenology as the intricate clockwork of nature. Get used to being a rock star here. <laughs> All right, how's that? Is that better? Can you hear me in the back okay? Okay, good. Um, well, so, Teo, thanks for inviting me up for this, and thank you all for coming out here. Um, citizen science is a really exciting field. It's a really great time to be thinking about this from a scientific point of view, educational point of view, and from community building point of view. And we can really bring all of this together and more using the power of public participation in scientific research. So I'm coming from Santa Barbara. I'm a PhD student at UC Santa Barbara in uh, ecology, evolution, marine biology. And for the past six or seven years, I've been working with a consortium of scientists and educators 
to create a nationwide citizen science program designed to track the effects of climate change on plants and animals, and also to engage or re-engage our communities in observing nature. That's something that, especially kids these days, are inherently missing in education systems or even just growing up. And so there's a lot of different aspects of society and life that we're really trying to address in different ways, all through engaging people in making basic observations of nature and sharing those. So what I'd like to do today is actually first start out with a little bit of context and history of citizen science. Uh, and then I'll move into what we've been doing at the national scale and what we've been doing here in California too. So, all right. So we tend to think of citizen science as this recent phenomenon, and it is. It's really exploded in the last decade. But actually there's a really rich history of members of the public participating in scientific research in different ways. For example, ooh, that's a little bit small, in China, Citizens and um, officials have been tracking locust outbreaks for over 3,500 years. And in Tokyo, Japan, court diarists have been recording the flowering time of cherry trees for the annual Cherry Blossom Festival for over 1,200 years. And in France, wine growers have been tracking the grape harvest days for over 640 years. These are really impressive long-term records from which we can learn a lot about long-term dynamics and their relation with climate. In the US, we see the legacy of citizen science in a really wide variety of records. So starting with um, naturalist journals from Henry David Thoreau and Aldo Leopold. These have actually been used in recent years to um, uh, pioneer different types of climate change research. The National Weather Service Co-op, thousands of volunteers for the last 150 years have collected climatic data across the country. It's the backbone of our climatic data source. Uh, the Lilac Phenology Network, again, thousands of volunteers scattered across the country monitoring the annual leaf out and reproductive cycles of lilacs, um, some of whom were, many of whom were actually National Weather Service co-op members too. And of course, our natural history collections, such as herbaria. So here in the US alone, we have tens of millions of preserved plant specimens that have been carefully curated and oftentimes geo-referenced and digitized. So these resources are all at our disposal. And actually, part of my dissertation is focused on <clears throat> developing new quantitative methods for using these preserved plant specimens to track historical patterns of climate change, specifically in California over the last 150 years. So it's an ancient science, and, um, but what we really see is that citizen science is now a burgeoning enterprise, scientific and educational enterprise. And we see this in, in different ways. It really lies at the intersection of science, education, resource management, public health, and policy. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I, for again, part of my dissertation, I wrapped up a literature review of the citizen science literature. And I was both incredibly excited and completely exasperated by the extent of publications in really widespread journals and fields. So the typical fields that you might think of, ecology and education and ocean sciences, molecular biology, but also astronomy and computer sciences, 
psychology, political science, economics, and even more. So we really see a huge diversity of interests across different disciplines and the way that, um, I guess what you would call practitioners in citizen science, how they're approaching um, this common framework. And so this emerging paradigm in citizen science, this new era of citizen science, is really fostering an improved relationship between scientists and the public. And I would argue this is a really important relationship to foster, especially as science is increasingly falling prey to political agendas. And so improving this relationship and decreasing the distance between the public and scientific inquiry is a really important step for all of us to consider. So in this new kind of mutualistic relationship between scientists and the public, citizen scientists specifically, what scientists get out of it, once they train observers, either through uh, in-person or digital collaborations, they can expect to um, receive a lot of data, uh, which can greatly expand the scope and the resolution of the research projects. And what this is doing is leading to unprecedented opportunities to study broad-scale processes. And when we're thinking about something that these large-scale processes that cross political boundaries, climate change, how, how are we going to go through the process of climate change adaptation across political boundaries? What do we even know about the ecology and the basic natural processes that cross those boundaries? How can we achieve those goals? Well, citizen science might be one way. Um, in return, citizen scientists gain access to experts for um, learning about local resources. They improve their inquiry and observation skills, ultimately leading to improved scientific literacy. And perhaps most importantly um, is the act of contributing authentic information that's actually valuable. Now, what we're actually seeing is that uh, we're seeing these kind of emerging properties of citizen science um, in different um, outcomes for the community. So for example, where we have citizen science programs that have measured increases in scientific literacy. We can also see um, greater trust emerge among scientists, the public, and resource managers. We see increased stewardship of lands, both backyard and public lands. And we even see greater civic engagement in conservation issues. And so it's this utility of citizen science and really these broad spectrum outcomes that serve science and society both that is generating a tremendous groundswell of interest and support for a global citizen science movement. And we're seeing thousands of citizen science projects pop up around the world. Um, I think the, the number of a few years ago in the US was over 600 projects have been registered with a group called Citizen Science Central that's based out of uh, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. So that provides a nice um, kind of context for I think what we're going to be doing today, what we're going to be discussing today. And so what I wanted to do is move into what we're doing with our National Phenology Network and our California Phenology Project. But first, I thought we should all get on the same page with phenology. So it's um, the simplest way to put it, phenology is the science of the seasons. So we all have an intuitive sense of this from the time we're little kids. We see spring wildflowers, we see autumn colors in the forest, we see birds migrating overhead. And in fact, it's an ancient science um, that is also very practical. So traditional knowledge was, has been generated over generations 
to improve hunting and fishing productivity, to um, plant and harvest crops, to improve crop productivity, and even to navigate waterways. And we even see this legacy in the names of our plants, in our flora. So we see plants like shadbush, which historically were uh, flowering around the same time that shad were being fished. And also salmonberry, whose fruits ripening were used as an indicator that it was time to go fish for salmon in near and far away rivers. Exactly. <laughs> so phenology is also a cutting edge science. And it is a, a really powerful tool for studying climate change and for linking it with human health and society and our economy. So phenology has a really big impact on each of these areas in our economy, from wildfire risk and forest pests and disease outbreaks to invasions, plant invasions, uh, which can also influence the wildfire and pest and disease dynamics, uh, agriculture and fisheries, Anybody who suffers from allergies is well aware of the personal impact of phenology, and even ecotourism, where something like the leaf peeping industry in the north, northeastern US, that's a $1 billion industry every year. So phenology is actually a really powerful method to monitor environmental change, and it's an intuitive way of engaging the public in observing nature. And so, um, around 2007, a consortium of scientists and educators came together, uh, senior scientists and government agencies, academics, and NGOs, and formed what has become the National Phenology Network. And our goal is to encourage people of all ages and backgrounds to observe and record phenology as a way to discover and explore the nature, uh, explore the nature and um, the pace of our dynamic world. It's interesting, we think oftentimes about learning about the environment as learning about objects. What's the name of that bird? What's the name of this ecosystem or that plant? Phenology is focused on learning about processes. Names kind of come second sometimes. Learning about the process allows us to understand a deeper level of um, not just science, but our connection with, with, the, with the world around us. So launched in 2007, it's a um, federal research program housed within the U.S. Geological Survey. There is a national coordinating, coordinating office with um, about 10 full-time staff members um, based out of the University of Arizona. And there's a 15-member steering committee, senior scientists. And um, we employ both a bottom-up and top-down approach, meaning that we create the opportunity for programs to be created and we also engage individuals and organizations that are engaging individuals too. So there's several ways that we can um, approach describing this network. And so we see um, our network in leading phenological and climate change research by providing a framework for studying ecology and climate change, by coordinating different uh, scientific disciplines like remote sensing, uh, under one umbrella of trying to understand landscape phenology. So imagine trying to um, combine data from satellite images, from webcam, automated webcams, and observational data on the ground. So there's working groups that are trying to um, improve the, uh, the me meshability of the data. Um, we also foster partnerships in science and education to help link organizations that are trying to achieve similar goals um, under a phenology kind of framework. Uh, support the development of different programs 
And of course, education is a really big part of this, not just for school kids and the public, but also for scientists. Um, we all need to come up to speed on different ways that we can work across discipline, scientific disciplines to achieve this. And of course, the monitoring program. So Nature's Notebook is our online monitoring program. And this program, um, if you want to learn more about it, you can go to the website, the National Phenology Network website. And um, think of it as Facebook for nature without all, the privacy, without all the privacy issues. So you can basically adopt a plant and update the status of the plant over time. So to participate, simply search for plants and animals in your area. There's a really simple tool to use. Uh, learn the protocols, how to observe, register yourself, register your site and your plants, and then begin reporting. There's an app for it, so you can enter it right there. Uh, the apps work offline, so if you're in a wild area without any um, uh, signals, then you can um, report your data and it will automatically upload it for you later on. And so um, we create, uh, specifically here in California, we've been focusing on getting um, these coordinated efforts going. And so one thing we've done is created field guides with photos for each of the um, phenophases or the phenological phases that we're looking to study. Uh, data sheets are really simple. We ask questions and you answer questions such as, do you see open flowers on your plant today? Yes or no? Do you hear frogs calling today? Yes or no? If so, how many? Do you hear one? Do you hear a few? Do you hear a full chorus? So what we're getting is both the yes and the no information. It's really important to see both sides of the story and the abundance. How intensely is this happening? And so um, in 2013, we saw over 1.3 million observations reported from across the country. And California came in in first place with over 250,000. We're very proud of that. Um, and this is all open access data, so you can go to the National Phenology Network website. You can download the data using a tool where you can filter, sort, and choose which type of data for which animals and which region or which partners you want. Uh, there's also a data visualization tool, so you can see which phenophases for which plants or animals are happening, and you can actually animate that over a map showing climatic data. And the data are already being incredibly useful in both um, basic science, applied science, and resource management. So there's a project in the southwestern US tracking juniper pollen production. And this is an integration of satellite data with citizen science data on the ground. Um, invasive species removal that can be timed with green up of certain grass, invasive grasses. Uh, calculating carbon fluxes. Collecting plant seeds for habitat restoration or for research. Um, education activities, of course. And even maybe planning vacations. <laughs> And so um, since 2007, the national scale program has been running. And around 2010, we really uh, started to focus in California. By we, I mean myself, uh, my faculty advisor at UC Santa Barbara, Dr. Susan Mazur, and a handful of other scientists, um, mostly in the National Park Service. Um, and so we launched what has now become the California Phenology Project where we're coordinating scientific efforts across the state in order to understand the effects of climate change on California's landscapes. So our overarching goals are to, um, or have been, and we have successfully established a coordinated phenological monitoring network that covers a large geographic area and covers key environmental gradients. So what we can do is set up studies where we can 
monitor the same plant species across a latitude gradient, say from San Diego all the way up to the northwest coast, or across elevation gradients from the valley floor all the way up to the top of the Sierras. And we can use, we can study the relationship between plants or animals and climate in one year to better understand what we might expect to happen over the long term. And by studying different species and in doing this in a, in a very rigorous way across different ecosystems, we can begin to understand which species might be more sensitive to the effects of climate in the short term, and climate change in the long term, or which ecosystems or habitats might be more sensitive than others. And of course, um, the ultimate goal is to establish a baseline of data for long-term comparison. So we're doing this with a very long-term vision that 10, 20, 50 years from now, scientists will be going out re-measuring these plots and the same plants, hopefully, in some cases, and um, contributing to this ongoing long-term data series. Whoop, we hit the wrong button. Can you get us back there? There we go. Great. Okay, good. So uh, the California Phenology Project was launched in 2010 with major funding from the National Park Service. And we've been focusing in the national parks. Um, here you can see them in red, but um, you know, the nice, nice beautiful places, Sequoia Kings Canyon, uh, the Presidio, and the Marin Headlands, um, Joshua Tree, uh, Lassen Volcanic National Park, and the Redwoods. Uh, we use that as a foundation to engage not just the parks, but we would invite in local teachers, local scientists, um, NGOs, anybody interested in environment, environmental education, environmental monitoring, and we use that as a platform to engage the local community with the national park being a local hub of activities and a local source of knowledge. We then expanded that into the UC Natural Reserve System. So the University of California owns 38 reserves across the state and we've been working in nine, um, recently 10 of those, um, studying the same plant species as in the parks, using the same protocols, and all of those data are completely compatible. And um, the last thing I wanna share with you is just kind of the big picture of what we're up to and what we've been doing. So in order to achieve these national goals and these statewide goals, we have um, been um, uh, running research-related activities, uh, getting this project up and running, you know, I don't have time to go into detail, but it was a um, very laborious two-year process that um, involved many, many scientists and educators um, vetting species lists and trying to figure out protocols and improving the way that we do the science, all under a scientific framework that we created. Um, we have been helping to develop programs at national parks, UC reserves, botanic gardens, universities, K-12 schools, and we run a lot of training and outreach activities. We've trained well over 700 people in the last few years in workshops that range from an hour to three to five days. And uh, finally, educational activities. I uh, didn't go into that too much, but we have um, published and created a lot of curricula. Uh, most recently, one of my lesson plans is published in a citizen science book uh, published by the National Science Teachers Association. So it's 15 lessons, all focused on citizen science. <coughs> Um, so it's a great resource for especially K through 12 classrooms. Um, and then we've been um, generating uh, data-driven activities for college classrooms or for high school classrooms and um, helping to develop teachers' um, uh, awareness about phenology and climate change. 
So that about wraps up, um, hopefully what wasn't too, too much over our, our time limit, but um, that was designed to give a broad overview so that you can see the scope of the project. Uh, there's definitely a lot more details I can provide, a lot more information I can provide, so I look forward to questions during the panel discussion. Thanks. Thank you, Brian. Um, and what Brian didn't mention is that um, tomorrow at 1.15, he's actually giving a training on um, becoming a part of the California Phenology Project. If you're a teacher or have a farm or whatever it is, if you're just a person um, and want to learn more in your program at 1.15, you can, tomorrow you can join Brian and learn a lot more about it. So we're moving now from um, more sort of traditional citizen science, which is what you might call Brian's project, to um, uh, something that is potentially halfway, maybe, between, um, let's see, is this you? Pioneer's presentation? No, that's, uh, I think it's, yeah, one. No. Okay. Halfway between technology and life? There you go. <laughs> um, halfway between the uh, citizen science world and maybe the DIY maker world, and so Shannon will take us through this. I, just had lunch with you, and I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Oh, Dosmegan. Dosmegan. Shanna Dosmegan founded and co-founded and is the president of the multiple award-winning New Orleans-based Public Laboratory for Open Technology and Science, which coalesced in response to the BP oil spill and is now a groundbreaking environment, groundbreaking platform and resource for citizen science activism nationally and internationally. With 14 years' experience in community organizing and education, Shannon is active on many councils and advisory boards of leading activist NGOs, and we're thrilled to have her out here from New Orleans. All right, so um, thank you for giving us that history of citizen science. I think it's uh, important to understand where we came from, especially because my feeling is, I, well, I know my talk, and I think Severin's as well, is going to be um, more of a, a demonstration of where uh, community science, civic science, citizen science, whatever you want to call it, um, has gone in the, the last several years in these really interesting directions. Um, but we, of course, need to, to know the foundations um, of, you know, where we came from. So, um, like uh, Teo said, I'm the executive director of Public Lab. Uh, we will not use that long name in this presentation because we know that is long. Um, we are a nonprofit that supports an open source community of people across the globe who are interested in creating DIY, so do-it-yourself, do-it-together style tools to do environmental monitoring projects with. The Public Lab nonprofit is specifically interested in um, situations of environmental pollution. Uh, so we concentrate a lot on extractive industry work. Um, and we're a community that came together from many different backgrounds. Um, myself, I'm an environmental anthropologist, a community organizer. Uh, we have technologists and hackers, uh, designers. We have biologists and chemists. Um, and you know, people from communities that are, are just interested in figuring out what's in the air that they're breathing. 
So um, I want to give you a bit about my background. Um, I'm from New Orleans, and uh, for a majority or many years of my career, I'm 31 now, um, I worked in communities like this. Uh, so this is a very popular thing that you would see if you were driving um, in what has come to be coined Cancer Alley, uh, the chemical corridor that goes along the Mississippi um, right before you hit the Delta. Uh, so I was an organizer in fence line communities um, working with using um, what you'll see in this right-hand corner. Uh, so this is a basically a replica or a recreation uh, of a low-cost version of an EPA SUMA canister uh, used to take community-collected air samples um, when there wasn't a government agency available to actually do the sampling. Uh, it allowed communities to go directly to the fence line that they lived on, and when uh, refineries decided to send up that massive flare of smoke, I'm not sure if anybody's ever seen this before, anybody? It is a site, we call it the midnight sun in Louisiana because they like to do in the middle of the night when people aren't watching. Uh, it gives people the power to take their own um, air samples. Uh, so I was, I was spending much of my time doing this kind of organizing, working on community asset mapping, um, and this is leading into 2009. When this event happened, um, we were literally in a, a car on the way to work with a community, um, heard the, the news on the radio that the deep water rig had basically um, exploded and it was sinking slowly into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and we realized right away that this was going to be um, something that, of course, as um, I was working for the Louisiana Bucket Brigade at the time, um, one of the only oil and gas watchdogs in the state of Louisiana. Um, this was something we were going to have to put our full attention on. Um, one of the, the things that arose in the very early days of this was that uh, there was a complete media blackout. Um, it became very difficult to figure out what was going on, where information was coming from, what information was accurate. Um, and as we watched and smelled this thing unfolding literally in our backyard, we really didn't have ways uh, to get involved in um, figuring out how to do our own monitoring um, or engage in a, in a critical manner. So the first project that I launched um, was what you'll see in the right, right upper hand corner. Uh, this is an instance of a platform called Ushahidi. It's an open source crisis ma mapping platform that allows people to contribute their own reports about what they're seeing. Um, we would run outreach teams into southeastern Louisiana, uh, to Mississippi and Alabama to work with people on contributing information. Um, it was an interesting platform, uh, but really it wasn't, it wasn't enough. Um, we would be walking beaches, uh, we would be out on boats and seeing things like tar balls um, and very kind of orangish clay that would be floating up alongside the boats. So ideas started popping up in our head about all these different tools that would be really excellent to have available. Um, um, but simply weren't, either because there was uh, a lab that was involved in part of the process, or tools were, were simply at a price point not accessible to us. So the very first project that we did in um, the, the Gulf region was we started launching kites and balloons. Um, so this media blackout that I mentioned um, also meant that planes were not allowed to fly below 3,000 feet, um, making it really difficult to collect images from above. So we went from the bottom, from, from below, from the grassroots. Uh, we took to boats, we took to beaches um, and the wetlands areas. Uh, we worked with over 250 people from across the region, including shrimpers, fishermen, fisherwomen, uh, college students, community residents. Um, and we launched these balloons and kites 1,500 feet to 2,000 feet in the air to collect images of the spill as it unfolded across our coastline. 
So this was the, the basic moment that started Public Lab. Um, and since then, we've grown, like I said, into um, a, a large organization. We have over 15 chapters across the world um, that are working on using different Public Lab tools. Um, we have a number of different tools in our, our suite or our toolkits, um, including pollution sensing spectrometers, oil testing kits, uh, water quality monitoring tools. Um, it's, a, it's a very broad range. Um, I'm going to focus primarily on this project as we go forward, though, uh, just for sake of time, and talk a bit about our community methodology. Um, but first, so I want to I want to just point out two of the reasons that we decided to form Public Lab. There are lots of citizen science projects going on in the world, tons. Um, two of the problems that we saw with um, the way that people were not allowed access to either these projects or these tools um, was first, as I mentioned before, that tools are not created at a price point that's accessible to the everyday person, me, you. Um, they're typically made available at a price point that is for corporations, for governments, and for research institutions. Um, so making it, uh, in, in essence, really impossible for myself, community organizations, NGOs, to get involved in doing their own monitoring. The second is that we were seeing uh, the research process um, being uh, non-inclusive. Uh, so many times we'll see researchers from institutions say, hey, I have a problem, and I would like for you to go out and collect data to give back to me. Um, problematically for us, we were not seeing people being included in what we like to call the full data life cycle. So understanding um, and identifying what the problem was, working on what the tools are, how you're going to collect data, how you're going to analyze data, and then how you're going to use it for advocacy purposes. So public lab, um, we, I, I also don't like to use the term citizen science necessarily. Um, we many times call ourselves a civic science organization, a community science organization. Um, I'm up for suggestions if somebody out there has another one that's uh, very inclusive and transparent. Um, but these are some of the, the points that we try to bring into our process. Uh, like I said, we want people to be involved in every step of um, what, the, what they're working on with other people. Um, we use open source licensing so that our tools can grow in ways that are beneficial in different local situations. Uh, and we also want to create and have created a space for different expertises to be recognized and to come about. Um, so it's not just uh, a science expert, somebody who has um, you know, a PhD in biology that's leading a project. It's somebody that also knows likewise about their local river um, that is working in coordination with a number of different people to solve problems that they have come up with. So um, going back to balloon mapping and kite mapping in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, this was the basic kit that we started using. So this kit um, helped us to collect uh, hundreds of thousands of images. Uh, this kit costs below $80, and we used three of these by a kind of lending library structure where people would pass them back and forth um, when they were needed. It's basically a uh, chloroprene balloon. In the left-hand corner, this is one of my favorite parts. It's the top of a two-liter soda bottle that helps you to stabilize your camera. Um, we would use 30 to $40 point-and-shoot cameras. Many times you would find in a junk drawer that you hadn't pulled out for many years. Um, and kite reel or kite string. 
So this is what the, the rig would look like um, when it was up in the air. Um, and like I mentioned, using this process, collecting all those images, we also were able to create um, a community archive of hundreds of maps. And um, we're able to, to map over 200 miles of coastline and waters um, during the BP oil spill over a set duration of time. It was, uh, I think, between May and July. And so the reason that we were interested in doing this, um, I'm sure some of you in this room work for NGOs. Um, I was an NGO worker at the time. Um, we're very used to having to beg for data from um, things like this, the Emergency Response Management Agency, um, which gives us these very blurry satellite images, uh, especially, you know, this is very regional, but during the summer in the Gulf of Mexico, cloud coverage is such that you don't even get these images. Um, so this image is from July 22nd in 2010, and it shows um, on the, the two banks where there's uh, red lines, heavy oiling, and where there's a neon green line, it says that there's very light oiling. With community collected images, exact same day, July 22nd in 2010, we see a much different story. It's way more difficult to differentiate between if there was heavy oiling in some areas, light oiling in other areas. So this was a way for people to contribute a different narrative to what was happening to the land around them, um, this being a very important area for oyster fishers. Um, also going in and doing ground truthing at the same time, so having the ability to, to get off a boat, take pictures of the, the berms that should have been out in the water that are actually laying on ground. But it's not enough, um, <laughs> thanks Evan, it's not enough just to take these images, leave them on a point and shoot camera. Um, the other thing that we did specifically with aerial mapping was we wrote a image stitching platform. It's uh, browser-based, open, freely usable. Um, and this was a way to take those raw data images, those pictures from your camera, and translate them back into languages of power so they were more applicable to a broader audience. Um, so I'm talking about geotiffs and, and JPEGs. We also, like I said, created an archival um, source that will give you all of the data, all of the metadata that went into each of the images. Um, so here's a completed map um, from days after the spill that shows oil coming off the Chandler Islands. It gives you all of the geo-coordinates of where images were taken. It gives you the names of the people who are responsible for taking the images, those who are responsible for stitching them. It gives you over five different formats. You can download and access this image in and use it. Um, and below, if we scroll down, there were videos and field notes and stories from the people that were capturing those. Um, and Louisiana, in many areas, um, this is not enough. So we're, we're constantly thinking about the tension between um, low-tech, high-tech, um, and what it means to go back to our roots and use things such as paper maps uh, to reach a broader audience. Um, so we do something called the Grassroots Mapping Forum. So we were releasing paper maps of um, the Gulf during the oil spill, uh, distributing them to gas stations, to marinas, um, to fishing clubs along the Gulf so that there would be better access to information. All right, so I'm going to just talk through um, some of our points that um, wind through uh, many of the different projects that Public Lab has. I think that will be um, more more interesting than me going through our tools. Um, and I, I hope um, we see these as principles that can be applied in lots of different communities, not just in communities that are creating tools or environmental health communities. Um, so maybe some principles that you can take away with you. 
Um, the very basic one that I talked about in the beginning um, is to engage researchers, not subjects. So never to think of the people that you're working with as um, points for data collection. Always to think of them as co-researchers, you know, whether they're a two-year-old boy um, or a 90-year-old woman. Pulling complexity off the shelf. Um, so taking very simple consumer devices and doing minimal modifications, very simple hacks, can take this camera that you might have you know, taken family reunion pictures with and make it into a data collection device. So this is the, the camera that we use when we're aerial mapping. This is the camera that we open up and we take out a sensor and we replace it with um, a filter and we create a near-infrared imaging camera um, so that you can read the health of plants. Very simple. Building in openness and accountability. Um, so Teo and I talked a lot about uh, drones over lunch. Um, so on, on the right-hand side, I have a picture of a drone and a satellite, um, both initially built for stealth and invisibility um, for the unseen. Um, on the right-hand side is what we think of when we see civic science as a process. So there's a massive red balloon in the air or a bright nine-foot kite that is flying above you. It's attached to a string, which is attached to a reel, which is attached to the hand of the person that's collecting data, which situates you in the community in which you're actually taking images or doing the data collection in. Um, it gives people the, the avail you, you become available for people to ask you questions, uh, ask about what you're doing. Creating cooperative and collaborative workflows. Um, so this goes back to our licensing I'll talk about in uh, a minute. Um, but on all of our websites, we have an entire ecosystem of about six different platforms at this point. One of the essential things is how the community shares information. Um, so in this system, research notes online, uh, people will share back basic modifications. So instead of using the two liter soda bottle, in this middle picture on the bottom, somebody started using a wastebasket uh, to put their camera in to stabilize when they're doing aerial imagery. And that's how our tools grow and develop. Likewise, we do this in a similar offline format. So here's a picture of a barn raising. Uh, the public lab vents have become called barn raisings because um, we borrow this term to be emblematic of the way that we come together to think and create. So, we meld into the hackathon model, um, but we don't want to take people to a university or um, you know, a, a community hack space or a maker space. Uh, we're interested in taking people out to the site that they're actually going to be working at. So whether it's at the, um, the Plymouth Nuclear Power Plant in Plymouth, Massachusetts, as we did in June, um, or in a month we'll be going down to Cocodrie, Louisiana, where you see oil and gas pipelines coming out of the wetlands and shooting off flares. This is where we like to situate the making that happens in public lab. So we get people together to think about not only the tools and the techniques they're interested in, but also the ethics behind participation, the ethics behind using balloons and kites to take pictures, um, how we can build an education models to our community. We maintain public data archives. Um, so this is, this is a different tool. This is Spectral Workbench for our spectrometer. A spectrometer basically reads rainbows um, and tells you what is in a sample like water or soil. Um, and so what we do is we create archives for all of our different systems that are freely available that allow people to upload their samples, to pull in samples from other databases. 
mainstreaming true accountability. So one of the steps that goes beyond the public lab archive um, is that we, way back during the oil spill, uh, began working with Google Outreach. Um, so now if you go into Google Outreach, in this red circle it says imagery public laboratory. If you clicked on that, uh, it would take you back to MapNitter, where all of the metadata is for each of these maps. Metadata meaning, again, who made the map, who stitched it, um, what resolution it's at, um, all of the individual images you can access. Uh, and so this is something that's available to any of our community members that decide to release their images into the public domain and say, yes, I want this freely avail available for people to use. So one of the most important components, I probably should never leave this until one of my last slides, um, is to protect our openness with viral licensing. Um, so we're the first community that, our large-scale community, that picked up the CERN open hardware license. Um, so likewise with uh, the, the Creative Commons licenses that protect software and online materials, CERN protects our hardware. Um, so what this means is that what we request of people is um, if I you know, gave you a soda bottle rig and I ask you um, to, to make a different model of it or you decided I'm going to make a slight change, we would ask you to share that information back as a way that our community then grows. So these licenses protect any user upstream from actually being able to patent or um, disallow modifications to happen. And this is a very essential component of the way that Public Lab works together. And because of that licensing, um, we make local versions of tools. This is also um, one of the key components of how Public Lab has grown, um, is that all of the materials that are in each of these tools, um, from our balloon mapping rig to our spectrometer, which started as a VHS cassette tape, a broken DVD, and a webcam, they all are things that can be found in your recycling box, in a local hardware store, um, things that are accessible. So just as a last for instance, uh, that, that picture um, here, this is our very first instance of using uh, a stabilizing ring in the Gulf, rig in the Gulf Coast. You'll see the cardboard wings. Um, has anyone ever been to the Gulf Coast and felt that humidity? It, it gets wet. The air is very wet. So when we sent this up the first time, what I saw when it came back down was melted cardboard wings that had not stabilized and done their job. Because of that open source licensing, uh, the second down on the right-hand side, that green bottle, it's a very simple switch, and it may not be impressive, but it basically revolutionized the design of how our stabilizing rig came together just by putting on plastic um, wings that would help it to spin slower um, and keep it more stable. So these very minimal things are essential to the work that we do. All right, so that's all that I have for you. Um, and I think Severin's on next. Thanks. I drink too much coffee. Hi, everybody. So um, I, should, I should give as a preamble, I should explain that my role with FarmHack is as an ambassador and kind of like Wendy to this pack of wild inventors 
who sometimes feel like a bunch of rascally lost boys, or Peter Pans, um, in the open source community um, of, of farmer inventors. Um, and so sometimes I'm repeating the things that they say, but I don't know how to make the tools. Like Shannon's more of a, a techno lady. How do I move? Oh, thank you. See, even the buttons are hard. No, it doesn't. I'll use this button. Okay. Um, so, so a little bit of context. So um, this is Dorn. He's the board president of FarmHack. This is his farm, Tuckaway Farm. Um, he is a part of a family. Four, gener four generations are on that family farm. He focuses on grains. Here he's drying. Um, it looks like rye in the greenhouse where he keeps the combines. Um, I first met Dorn because I heard he had a cooperative of combines. Just in case you didn't know, a combine would fit in this room, um, barely. Um, helping, helping to reinstate grain growing in New Hampshire. Um, New Hampshire is predominantly forested um, and was abandoned during the western migration of American agriculture um, because there's a lot of stones and rocks. Um, Dorn is interested in field work. Um, down below you see that same rye being rolled. Oh, the roller's out of the roller's out of the shot. But anyway, there's a Rodale Institute created an open source tool, which in fact is one of the first open source hardware in agriculture projects, to roll down the rye to create a mulch, crimping the rye to create a mulch on the, on the ground, which then you can drill in the next crop. So it um, Either you're doing it before it's gone to seed for um, a mulch crop, or you're doing it after you've combined it with, um, with residue. So this is, again, we're transferring out of a GMO herbicide-based no-till system into a living mulch-based no-till system. Again, there's a lot of benefits to no-till in terms of the integrity of the soil. Um, another set of experiments that Dorn engages in are on the left here. This is... Um, his little drone, drones for, or not drone, but a uh, little airplane. And he is monitoring here test plots using the infrared technology of the, or near infrared hacked camera of public labs, monitoring the application of biochar, which is a homemade charcoal that instates uh, in a, a, it creates a state change in the soil. Sorry, I drank too much coffee, I'm like shaking. Um, and to see what those different application rates um, are doing to the crops using this overhead monitoring. Um, so a little bit about the people in this team here. Um, some of our, our community are startup farmers. So that is a particular group who have particular needs. Um, and FarmHack is really a, a relationship between the people who have those needs and between the tools they use to, fix the, to, to fill those needs. And their goals are usually to stay viable to save labor, save money, um, uh, save their back, uh, save time, save money. I said that already. Um, and also, of course, save the environment. Um, almost everyone in our community is committed to sustainable agriculture, um, to decentralized and local agriculture, to selling that food directly in the local place. And so because we don't compete with each other um, for intellectual property, we're all growing food for our local community. 
Our economics are based on producing food, not technology. So we can freely share our technology um, in an open source way and benefit, obviously, in the same way that in the open source community, we benefit from sharing code. Within the plant breeding community, we benefit from sharing germplasm and um, the heirloom varieties, which we have as a lineage from our ancestors. Um, yeah, this is a really cool tool. I'm going to just kind of tell you about some of the cool tools. But um, this is a, a paper pot that was developed. A paper pot. It's like a honeycomb of paper. And you can pot up your little lettuce plants in there. And then it's an applicator that kind of like zooms it into a little furrow. So that's a demonstration um, of that. So that's our, those are our community. This, again, I has my slide from yesterday. But um, repurposing tarps. You know, everything from very, very basic, you know, how to find the tarps, how to make sure, you know, if you get the tarps with more um, color in them, they actually last longer. Um, um, all the way up to into the robot stuff. Um, and we're doing it in rural places and as, as well in urban places. Um, so we've done, I think now, about 17 farm hack events, or maybe it's more. You can look on the, on the website. Oh, next, website. So the way that our community functions is we have these in-person gatherings. We have little bro teams who arrange themselves. Um, and then we have um, our, our website, which is on Drupal. Um, again, we're also in the open source software, open source hardware, open source everything <laughs> modality. Um, basically, on the tools, tools, click. Um, people are able to post their tools. So then you have a, the image of the tool. What does the tool do? Um, all of the descriptions of how to make the tool, um, of what the components are, of your, your long, long chats of forums, for those who like forums, um, back and forth around, well, I wanted to make it better like this, or actually, you know, so that you can see here, they're using, a, um, they're using lumber from pallets, um, or no, not lumber from pallets, but um, drain pipe and uh, rollerblade wheels to create the root washer. Um, next. Um, then, so we have the tools, then we have click, shops. Um, shops is a place where different organizations and farmers, um, NGOs, and projects and, and companies can post their open source tools. So, um, Green Start, that's Dorn's NGO. Greenhorns, that's my NGO. Um, Dan, who's also on our board, he's the Stone Soup. He's doing horse, horse tools on there. Um, NCAT is our valuable lineage from the 1970s of the open source tradition, I mean, the appropriate technology tradition here and beautiful microcosm within the USDA. If you don't know about NCAT, they have amazing um, open source production manuals and PDFs on sustainable pork, sustainable blueberries. Bah! All you want. Um, our friend Grant Schultz in Iowa, who I mentioned yesterday, it's his logo, VersaLand Farm. The Vermont Sail Freight Project, um, which was the sailboat we sailed from Vermont to Manhattan. Um, we sold $60,000 of food, and it's made out of 13 pieces of plywood. Um, and that whole thing is, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Apat oh, sorry, one more back. And then Apatronics, that's the first kind of company that grew out of FarmHack. Um, it's an open source hardware and um, elect, uh, Arduino-based sensor system for monitoring your greenhouse. Um, so again, it's open source. 
and you can also buy a kit. So it's not to say, oh, everything is give it all away for free. It's to say, you know, I'd like to share with you if you're inclined to get into the data and into the weeds and into the design process. But if you just want to buy the damn thing, you know, give me an email and I'll sell you a kit. There you go. Next. Um, you, there's a farm hack club at University of Vermont. Um, University of Vermont obviously has a huge sustainable ag program. Um, and, and there's also a really wonderful program at the vo vocational school, uh, Vermont uh, vocational school in, uh, where does the whole, where does the cows come from again? Where, marching of the cows is Brattleboro? No. Brain. Um, let's talk after, if you want to know more about Vermont. Um, so these are some of the tools. Um, again, there's kind of different threads through the, through the farm hack community. So we have the sailboat, an oat dehuller, um, vacuum seeder for doing much more lettuce, a lot around lettuce, a lot around um, um, bicycle-based tools for, for lettuce. Um, our friend Rob Brock is like the bicycle lettuce king. He grows like $100,000 worth of lettuce a year, all with pieces of welded bicycles. Um, uh, and you know propane weeders. This is a, this was his prostate weeder for laying down like this and then pedaling your way forward, um, which had some issues. Um, and then you know the, there's a whole generation of tools where the traction, the power, the horsepower is a horse. But then when you want a PTO, when you want to be actually churning with some more power back here, um, you know on the forecart you can have a little engine. So for, for the Amish and Amish inclined. So obviously we have, so we have a range of tools um, that, ha that have emerged. Again, we don't really have like a, a firm line that we're pushing. We're, we're here to support the community as it, as its needs emerge and as um, farmers who define their own technological trajectory and business trajectory and, and goals, um, you know, have projects they want to do. So we have little hardware, we have big hardware. As I was mentioning, that little robot, the, um, the Arduino program, that came about because um, three years ago in, in March, three years ago in March, um, it was 80 degrees on like March 11th in the Hudson Valley, and pretty much every farmer lost all their onions because the onions are, as I'm sure you know if you're a CSA farmer, they're out there early, and they're and they're, they take a long time. Um, so they're sitting in the greenhouse, and you're off being a crazy busy person. And when it um, gets so hot, it sizzled them all into nothingness. So th that first Arduino was made to just send you a text message in your pocket. Hey, your greenhouse is this temperature. You know, run back there. Um, so you know, again, we're talking about startup farmers who are resource constrained, aka broke and who um, are often using shared equipment, inadequate facilities, you know, using a, the greenhouse of, an in, of a you know, church, or a, in this case, it was a, a, a greenhouse of a Christian camp. Um, doo -doo -doo. Little hardware, you know, fixing the wobble in your bean seeder. You know, you know that earthway seeder? No, don't have enough farmers in this room. The conference needs a farmer rate. Um, Anyway, the, the bean plate on that little cedar has a tendency to wobble, and then you'll get you know, two beans in the hole. Um, but if you put a nickel on it, it doesn't wobble as much. Like drill a nickel on it. 
Oh, sorry, I keep pushing the button. Um, so, so FarmHack has been going along, and um, you know, as we see what kind of needed, our act, you know, our our manage our our mother wonder, our mother ducking of it has taken some different forms. We do a lot of show and tell. Um, people who we know are are doing cool projects, invite them to speak to other people who are interested in cool projects. Um, gathering people together, listening to who's doing what where, and just connecting them on just straight up email with each other, like. Um, organizing these events, um, inviting different organizations in to be shopping with, you know, to shop with us, um, facilitating, you know, especially when there's, you know, we have a lot of like white-haired tinkerers supporting new farmers in their in their in their town, and often those white-haired tinkerers with lots of equipment and expertise are not so like upload PDFy. Um, so much of the work is facilitating the upload of that of that information. Um, next. Um, so we see this work, um, this, this, you know, building the tools and the skills um, and the infrastructure for distributed food um, production all around the country. You know, the South was really, um, this is from Fortune magazine, um, after the, the, the uh, kind of dissolution of the plantation farm economy in its first iteration, you know, the second major economy after slavery and cotton in the South was heavy industry, of which um, Shannon has told you the outcome. Um, so what, we, what is the infrastructure for regional food production and regional energy production? Um, and where is the skill for that going to come from? Where's the direction for that going to come from? I think the answer is from us. Um, so next one. These are our community principles. Um, again, like Shannon, we meet, this is in the Grange Hall. Um, we meet in person. The, the kernel, the, the soul of, of this project is the relationship between the farmer and their, and their place. And then the team, the team of team sport of evolving a technology that's appropriate to that farm system and to that ecosystem, um, as opposed to um, the kinds of technology that we see in, in, in the broader economy. Next, next slide. Um, I kind of want to just keep going, because if I only have one minute. Um, oh, I have two minutes. <laughs> so, Farm Hack in New York, we, you know, work with Build It Green, who have a really awesome hack, which is they can salvage these old scaffolds. Um, once your scaffold has been used a certain amount of times, it's junk, even though it's untreated, beautiful locust wood, perfect for raised beds in the city. Um, let's keep going. Um, one of the principles is use biology whenever possible instead of, you know, technology. So we're very interested in tillage radishes and perennial, um, you know, rye cover crops. Again, the root washers. This is us displaying at the Maker Fair. This is a washing machine turned into a salad spinner. This is um, low-tech uh, bioremediation with wood mulches and inoculation in Gowanus Canal after um, Hurricane Sandy. And we had, a, we had a farm hack with 60 people on, on bicycles a week and a half after Hurricane Sandy. And we, you know, zooming around for two days, um, looking at all these remediation projects and um, watching all these people set, waiting for seven hours in line for their, for their gasoline. We were like, where could you not go in seven hours? You know, on foot, uh, moving. Um, for those who might give us a grant, um, this is some of our outcomes. Next one. Um, 
so it's been amazing. You know, we started like doing this thing, um, and then we discovered it's being doing being doing everywhere. Um, you know, Maya Pedal is a really famous early appropriate technology integrated into sustainable and agroecology, um, doing a lot of milling um, in in Guatemala. Um, there's guys in Italy. They're in France. Um, the, the guys in France, we got an email. Uh, it's, uh, oh, I didn't get an email. I had a Google alert out. And I saw a headline said, ils sont fous comme nous, which means they're crazy like us. So um, they had discovered us and were blogging about us. And then I read about them. And then um, I went over and visited. And um, they're in an old paper mill. Uh, anyway, they're so cool. And then they came over and we, we toured them around um, you know, all the different farm hack farms in the Northeast. Um, they're doing trainings. They do trainings with a little truck. And they did training in Quebec. Next slide. Um, so um, I have a publication coming out in two weeks called the New Farmers Almanac, and the theme of the of the of the publication is agrarian technology. So for a lot of us who are entering into this understory of the new economy uh, and putting our our lives as direct action into building that new economy from the bottom up. We have a, a, a complicated relationship with, you know, tech, with technology, and so you know most of us have a smartphone in our, in our pockets and have been staring at that internet since sixth grade. But we are very aware of um, how technology concentrates power, and creates inequity, and the fact that those that 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 smartphone was made by people at slave wage labor, um, working for huge multinational monopolies. Um, and of course, mining all the materials for our so-called open, free, everything nice world in the in the digital cloud. Um, so that's a very that's a very important part of this discourse around technology. So you know, SketchUp, which is a useful tool for building, um, for, used to be really used to be free. You can you know make it online, design online 3D things, and then you could print them and you can send it to a fab lab to make it with metal. Well, that was bought by Trimble who's now working integrated with um, Pioneer and um, um, Dow, sorry, not Dow, DuPont. They basically put these like $70,000 ugly braces full of sensors and doodahs on the front of a tractor. And that is feeding data directly into the agribusiness monopoly, who then games the system um, across the landscape, even into the, the point of telling the farmer when to irrigate. Um, so that's now in prototype, that Trimble tractor thing. Um, in, you know, in America. Um, you know, Instructables also was bought. Um, you know, Disney sponsored the Maker Faire. Um, a wonderful journal that you could know about in the deep ecology context called Techni, which is a, a philosophical and political economy framework on, you know, technology criticism and, and analysis. These are, um, you know, we're very aware, again, the history of the Grange was a revolt against the Bonanza farms, which were dr major drivers, you know, gentlemen farmers from the east buying up 50,000, 200,000 acres and ma major steam tractors. This is at the time when neck and neck was gasoline and steam for tractors. Um, and it may wrap it up. Uh, Bonanza farmers, next slide. This is a woman. Her name is Ada. Um, uh, Ada. Um, so we're really glad to be part of a community of people who are focused on applying our principles and our agency to the process of improving the terms of production for the source of life. 
um, in our case, food. Um, in other, in other, these are the projects that you should know about if you're into this stuff. The end. I think there might be one more slide, actually. Oh, yes. Um, this is the most important part of this audience. Uh, we have two farm hack events coming up here on the West Coast, um, which I'll be at them both. Um, maybe we can leave the slide up for a second. You can write down their email address. The first one is focusing on sensor-based irrigation management. Um, beep, 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 meeting water. And then the second one is on fuel alcohol, amazing place. They have a um, distillery that creates fuel alcohol to fuel tractors um, out of agricultural residues. And um, this, in this case, the feedstock is pressed wine grapes. So it's um, a waste product of the grape industry, which I told you about in Mendocino. OK. Great. So we have, um, oh cool, so we've got 20 minutes for Q&A. Um, and there's a microphone in back, um, or you can just shout it out and I'll repeat the question so we have it on audio. Um, one thing I just want to mention while you can sort of think up the questions is, you know, it's fascinating across all these different projects and we've had quite a little uh, journey from phenology all the way to um, grain alcohol for tractors just now. Um, is that the relationship, uh, you th citizen science and scientific work is often, uh, the technology and the research is often kind of upfront and th the big part of what people think about. Um, I think one of the big takeaways here is that there, a lot of this, at least in this, as it relates to environmental and social issues, um, a lot of this boils down to the relationship between people and place and, and how people care about and understand and want to want to relate to their places. And I think that's a through line going through all these three um, presentations. So if you have any questions, um, are you back there? And then we'll go with you. So how about in the back and then in the front? Sure. My question is for, for Brian, or anyone, but specifically for you. What does um, phenology on the farm as opposed to you know a, a park or preserve? What does farm, uh, phenology on the farm specifically look like? What kind of parameters are you examining? Do you mean like how are we actually, how are we implementing our programs on farms? Sure, so for example, you said you're giving a workshop tomorrow at uh, 1, 115. Right. Yeah, um, 115. And, and you, you mentioned, you made mention of uh, you know, teaching people to um, to look at these parameters in, in different areas, and you mentioned farmers too, and so I'm wondering, right. you know, as, aside from bird species and, and so on, the mm -hmm. things that you would track in a broader areas, is there anything specific to agricultural land that is important to your group? Definitely, um, in different ways. So one thing we realized pretty early on in working with um, some folks in the Department of Agriculture or with NGOs um, is that the predictive capabilities of agriculture are much better than our predictive capabilities for wild systems. And we can um, look to the um, kind of precision of some of those systems that are already set up for farming to try to learn how have they honed in on the kind of phenological knowledge. Um, 
whether or not you agree with you know the practices that are going on there, there's still an interesting lesson to be learned is that which is that it's working with the seasons in order to improve and optimize agricultural best practices is one way. But um, in terms of you know, really relating phenology to a, in a farm setting, one way is to think about, um, uh, I guess some people call them pollinator-friendly plants or nursery plants. So um, looking at planting particular species around the margins or in between crops in order to bring in particular pollinators or to bring in particular um, uh, parasitoids of pests and trying to create a sequential series of flowering or of resources to bring in those insects or the resources that you're trying to bring in. So in thinking phenologically, we can then integrate a, a biological and ecological matrix through farms in order to achieve goals that uh, could otherwise you know, be using bad chemicals, and you know, maybe there's a, a more natural way to do that by working with the seasons. Thanks. Can I add something? Yeah, please. Um, a, a lot of the work in the insectary world and the what's called biological control, or used to be called biological control until they lost a lot of their funding, and um, a lot of the funding that it does still live is living in um, ecological grape culture. So like Mendocino County is kind of like world headquarters for biological control research and planting these fabulous insectaries, you know, these ribbons of wildflowers through the vineyards. Um, wonderful humans in that department. And that's most, not because the wine grapes um, are, are, you know, good necessarily on the land, but because people can make money in wine and people um, who are having a, a green brand in their, in their winery um, can really have value from that. So it's kind of like an exceptionally prosperous part of our agricultural economy that therefore can afford itself um, the research and development into um, biological systems enhancement. Um, another really good resource on that is Farming with the Wild, mm -hmm. um, well, or sorry, Wild Farm Alliance. Um, and once a small, you know, Farming with the Wild way of thinking you know, um, really good environmental history. Uh, um, uh, oh, little brain. Come back to me. Um, there's a really great book whose name I've forgotten, but it talks a lot about environmental change um, in American agriculture and early soil conservation movement and kind of the changing climate uh, that American agriculture has experienced. And, one of the key learning points for our ancestors in New England who you know, were trying to plant wheat in New England and then changed over to corn culture because that was indigenous here and was the indigenous farm you know, um, technology of the indigenous people, they learned to plant their corn when the oak trees have a size of a squirrel's ear. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, their farming with the wild was informed by the native knowledge of phenology. I'll get you the book name after, sorry. That was one thing I was gonna add really quick too, is that there's a organic farm up the street from my house, uh, Fairview Gardens in, in Santa Barbara. And uh, they tend to plant their tomato plants um, or get them started in the greenhouse when they see their pomegranate trees starting to leaf out. And that's something that has been learned through, you know, like that traditional knowledge method that I was talking about earlier, uh, just through a handful of, of um, you know, maybe 10 years or so of just the farm managers keeping an eye on it and yeah, trying to figure and, it out. And so planting by the signs, what, what you and Severin are talking about, is there, um, 
Are you leveraging that information right now, that observational information from farmers and gardeners in your in anybody's group right now? I think if anybody in the audience wants to help in that route, then we should start doing that. <laughs> okay, this question is for Shannon, and I came to this because I'm a political activist who always trying to involve citizens in social and political change. And it's often very hard when you have a government and industry in cahoots against you. And there's no better example of that than um, the use of, B, of BP, uh, BP's use of Caraxes and Coast Guard's allowing that to happen. When Billy Nungasser from Plaquemines Paris was on Rachel Maddow every night talking about this, and the woman who was part of the Exxon Valdez, I forget her name, was on every night talking about this, and yet it happened, and now, you know, four years later, we're having the inevitable results of the use of that Caraxes on the you know, the oil workers and the fishermen and the people who are just out there trying to save their communities. So what I'd like to know is, with all the wonderful work that you have done with the mapping and everything, has any of that been able to make a difference, um, either in the process as it was going on or in future regulations for what's going to happen? And can you just give some examples? Sure. Um, the BP spill case is difficult because a lot of the data is still tied up in the NERDA process and will be um, for What's the. NERDA? Uh, you're going to make me go through an acronym. Okay, National Something Resource Agency. I don't know what the D is, but it's basically um, the the information that was stored um, while they were working on the litigation around the case. Um, so data from public lab and from community members was taken into that process um, to be seen if it will be useful going forward in a much larger political context uh, to, to give a for instance in a couple different cases where there isn't that massive disaster that we're you know dovetailing off of. Um, we've had community members in Plaquemines Parish working around the, the Ram Coal Terminal that took aerial photographs of uh, pollution coming off of a uh, coal conveyor into the Mississippi River on a what's called a good weather day, so a day that um, there were no storm conditions. Um, and so that's currently imagery that's being used to, to litigate around that case. Um, we've had people in the Gowanus Canal in Brooklyn, New York, that have utilized images and data that they've been collecting around the EPA Superfund cleanup process to get people on the Citizen Advisory Council. Um, so there's, we, we look, you know, going back to what Teo said, at very localized instances um, as some of our, our larger, you know, kind of community objectives and outcomes. So. Can, I, can I encourage you to use the, the microphone? Yeah, no, it's recording. Yeah, you can use the mic. Well, I'm pretty loud voiced. Go ahead and use it. Yeah. Thank you can queue up here. Maybe queue up behind the mic for the I'm a native Californian, and I wanted to ask Brian if his research shows anything about the effects of climate control on California. Not climate control, global warming on California. Uh, do you mean, well, so our uh, focused data collection efforts in California have been going since uh, 2011, and really 2012. Took a little bit, took a year and a half to really get up and going with our California phenology project. So with only, uh, we okay? With only uh, really two years of data, that's not enough time to see climate change as we think about climate change. We can see climate variability, climate variation, and we can see how phenol plant phenology is responding to climate variation. And we've set up the scientific framework so that we can see the latitude and elevation 
effects that are of climate um, on plant phenology. There are, however, a lot of studies that have come out, especially in the last 10 years or so, that um, describe the effects of climate change on California's flora and fauna. Um, a really fascinating set of studies was done. Um, so uh, uh, quite a while ago, uh, 80, 80 years ago, 60 years ago, um, Joseph Grinnell did really extensive natural history, mostly um, uh, animal observations around the state. And those were, re, um, those were completed again, the same transects and um, the exact same locations. Uh, and it took about, I think, three or four years to do that. And um, results are being published over the last couple of years. And so what we see from that is that range, geographic range size of some species is, um, say, moving up a mountain to track the climate envelope. Uh, others are actually moving down the mountain. Others are expanding both ways or contracting. Um, uh, other research from other projects um, have also shown that uh, plant ranges in California are um, doing the same thing. That some species are moving up the mountain in order to track a climate envelope. Some are actually moving down in order to get closer to water, essentially, um, and tracking water resources. So there are some patterns emerging in terms of um, which plants we think will be more um, sensitive to these effects, which might be more impeded to being able to migrate over time. Um, but it's really, um, there's a, it's a very large literature, body of literature. Um, and our project right now can only focus on the short-term effects of climate on plants. But in five to 10 years, we'll have a much better idea about the longer-term effects. Um, Brian, I have a question about reciprocity um, in the process that you described. Um, in the projects that, um, that you described, um, it obviously is for the good of, of us all, um, and you're employing your, your research ideas and asking citizens to be worker bees and go out and collect a lot of data for you. Um, is there also a a feedback process where citizens create their own scientific agendas and ask for mentorship in exploring those. Yeah, absolutely. So that's an aspect that I, um, that I didn't cover because of a short time period. But um, the community organizing component or the community science or civic science, um, these, what we have done is created a, a framework or created the ability for individuals and communities to self-start, to, to run their own projects and focus on whatever it is that they want to. Um, a particular plant, a particular animal, um, trying to link that with, say, water quality and looking at how, as water quality changes, how do uh, riparian trees respond to that. So there's a lot of different ways that that could be integrated. And so some examples of that would be um, where urban phenology trails have been created by uh, say like an individual person or like a family, and they just set up a public trail, um, meaning it's a sidewalk in through a, through a city, and they monitor several plants along the way. More and more people get involved, and so that becomes then a what people would call a community of practice. Now, focusing that onto 
a particular, say, conservation issue or um, a, you know, some of the concepts that, um, that were talked about um, is something that we want to know more about. Are people doing this more often? Um, the National Coordinating Office is fantastic about helping people in any way that they need in order to get programs or projects up and running. So all of the resources are there. So it's just a matter of who wants to do what with the monitoring protocols. And there's a lot of experience between um, all of the people involved in our California projects with um, all the people across the country, um, at Botanic Gardens, universities, K through 12 teachers. Um, there's so many different types of people involved that there's resources locally that people may or may not know about. And there's also regional and national resources too. Hi, my name is Roger, and uh, I work with the California Environmental Protection Agency, and I work with a lot of EJ communities throughout the state. Uh, one of the things we've done is help launch a bunch of uh, UCD-based community networks, reporting networks. Uh, they're called IVAN, Identifying Violations Affecting Neighborhoods. And I have a lot of questions for you guys, but I'm gonna, first couple are for Shannon. Um, so I'd like you to speak a little bit about the need for community monitoring, why it's important, kind of, filling in the cracks and gaps for government and our failure to do that more effectively. But uh, more importantly, does your organization provide guidance um, and protocols for communities to, number one, protect uh, community members who are actually doing monitoring or taking samples? <clears throat> number two, to standardize uh, the quality of that information so that it can be used in court or it can be used more effectively to create change. Because myself, one of the things that I've experienced <clears throat> and I try to advise community members is um, absence having those guidelines established, either at a statewide level or at a national level. It's, you know, it poses hazards to community members, number one, uh, health and safety issues. Number two, of all good intentions, um, you know, the information can't always be used, whether it's something as simple as trespassing or something more important like holding times, you know, for certain chemicals and samples. So I'd like you to speak to that and get more questions after. Okay, I might have to go back to your first question because I don't yeah. remember what it was anymore. Yeah. Um, so I'll start with the second one. Um, so yes, we build in social, social methodology to all of our projects uh, that give people a groundwork or, or, or framework for um, how they're approaching a problem or um, a, a specific situation. So you know, speaking about being on the fence line um, of a refinery, for instance, what the, the public, what the, the you know, difference between public and private territory is. And um, so yes, we do build those into our projects. Um, I, I agree with you um, on the portion about working um, towards you know, data verification and process. Um, we have lots of friends at the EPA. Um, and so we actually do work with uh, different folks from within agencies um, to 
I guess you could say do some standardization around our tools. Um, it's very difficult to do it in each local context. Uh, we can't go and work you know, with every single DEQ and DEP agency, um, but on the federal level, it's much easier for us to um, start working with you know, research scientists and the innovation labs at EPA. Um, NASA is another agency that has done a lot of outreach to us um, you know, because they do, like you said, recognize that there are these gaps that uh, people can fill um, with data that they're able to collect. Um, I'm not sure that I'm quite answering your question. Am I getting there? Yeah, you're There's getting a there. lot of pieces. I'm kind of looking them. for, I see a need for having a, really um, a guidance document, number one, to teach community members how to do right. community monitoring, fence line monitoring safely and effectively. Mm -hmm. Number two, um, kind of a Bible of standards. Like we have in the hazardous waste world, it's called SWA 46. <clears throat> and it's, you know, it's an EPA guidance on how to take samples and you know how soon you have to get them to the laboratory, what kind of testing analytical methods to use, that kind of thing. It's all spelled out. Mm -hmm. Something like that would be really useful for communities because they need to know, in addition to just understanding the basic science, know uh, how to take the samples so the information can be used effectively. Mm -hmm. And if that guidance document doesn't exist, it, it needs to exist. Right. We do. We. Go ahead. Should pay, you guys should give the government should give him a grant to create one. Exactly. Okay. Well, we can talk about that. I'm just kidding. Um, but yes, we do. <laughs> we um, we this is a very important part of our work is to to build in tutorials and instruction guides um, that are accessible and easy to use for people. So not having to read necessarily like through the data sheets that you're talking about. Right. But we'll take that information and we'll translate it into a way that is um, understandable. Um, I would love to talk to you more, though. Yeah, we'll talk offline. I'm sure line. that we could always do better. So. Yeah, because I'd like to know. I don't so, know if you know Denny Larson, uh, I Global Monitoring Group. I encourage you guys to connect afterwards. Yeah. We are flush out of time. Um, okay. So. Um, uh, do you have, I think he had a question. Or do you have, if you have one quick question, you're right. <laughs> well, <laughs> quick question. Quick. How important it. is quality control when it comes to collecting your data in a citizen science? Um, uh, do you need strict quality controls when it comes to data collection, I guess? Or uh, objectives of the project. If it's purely to, you know, an aesthetic project or purely to get um, students or the public, anybody involved in just participating and doing something, then if it, yeah, right, it's the participation that's important. If they are meant, if they're destined to be scientific data, if it's, um, if we're trying to get a rigorous program out of it, then data quality, that is the key feature. And so there are ways of, um, actually one of the main focuses right now in citizen science or public participation in scientific research is trying to figure out how to design programs in a holistic manner in every step of the way so that data quality and um, data assurance can be managed along the way. And that's from training materials to the monitoring materials and protocols to data entry to the way that data are managed in a database as well as how data are downloaded on the backside. So there's a pretty, it's, it's a big focus right now. Great. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank our amazing panelists.